This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Big uh, news out of out of uh, London with um, the announcement that Prince Harry will marry Meghan Markle. A big announcement, yeah, big engagement, and the wedding is set to uh, happen apparently in the spring of uh, next year. And uh, everybody seems to be excited in the royal family. Uh, a lot of people kind of go, oh, "I can't relate to that," you know. These are royalty; they have everything. At their beck and call. I can't relate to that. I'm working three jobs. I'm trying to make ends meet. What you know? I can't relate to that at all. Others use it as a sort of a form of escape in their life. They love to follow the royals because uh, they kind of dream about uh, their own lives a little bit. They live kind of vicariously, if you will, uh, through the royals and the various royal couples. So here we go. Uh, Prince Harry, who used to be a party boy, remember? Mr. Party Boy is settling down. Settling right down uh, with Meghan Markle, who uh, is best known as uh, an actress and playing a role on that hit uh, TV series Suits. And uh, word is that she has permanently moved from Toronto to London. And um, everybody's uh, apparently very excited about this. Uh, from the Queen, um, the royal family, the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh have uh, are delighted for the couple and wish them every happiness. So he's got the blessing of his grandmother and grandfather. Uh, and earlier today, uh, a statement was released by Harry's father. Let's have a listen to uh, that. That statement from Kensington Palace has said on the announcement of their daughter Meghan Markle's engagement, uh, we are incredibly happy for Meghan and Harry. Our daughter has always been a kind and loving person. To see her union with Harry, who shares the same qualities, is a source of great joy for us as parents. We wish them a lifetime of happiness and are very excited for their future together. There you go. Uh, very excited for their future together. And they've had their first uh, sort of formal engaged uh, photo op. Uh, there's pictures all over uh, television, all over the Internet you can check out of uh, uh, Meghan Markle. Harry uh, dressed up uh, looking dapper in a, in a gray suit and uh, she's wearing a white overcoat and, uh, you know, got that whole white bride thing going on. All of that, of course, is contrived and, and set up. And I guess she was uh, showing her ring to the, to the media throngs who were there to uh, take lots of, of uh, photographs uh, as well. All right, let's uh, let's go over uh, to the other side of the pond and uh, Jeff Semple, who's uh, the Europe Bureau Chief for Global News. Uh, Jeff, good to have you on the show this morning. Yeah, great to be with you, Jeff. Um, uh, good news for a change. Yeah, lots of good, lots of good news, and I think I think people <laughs> will view it that way, don't you? Yeah, well, of course, I think so. I mean, I think you know, weddings are generally good news, aren't they? And I think the you know, Prince Harry family getting engaged, popping the question to Meghan Markle. And, you know, I think Meghan is arguably someone that Canadians know better than the Brits do at this point, really. I mean, best known probably for her work as an actress on the hit TV series Suits, which is broadcast um, in North America, of course. And uh, certainly I, you know, have, have binged while. Uh, thanks again for being here this morning. Uh, before we had some uh, minor technical difficulties uh, before the break here, we were talking about how well-known uh, Megan Markle is to, uh, you know, Canadians and Americans, uh, less so to Britons. Yeah, that's right, Jamie. And I think, you know, I think obviously over the past, certainly the past two or three months, 
Britons have been sort of reading up on on Meghan Markle, but uh, you know, prior to that, she was not a known commodity in this country. I mean, most people did, had never heard of her. Um, so I think there is, you know, there's still a, a learning curve here in terms of, uh, at least as far as the British public is concerned. But I think most of what they've heard, they're encouraged by. I mean, she is, you know, obviously, uh, you know, it, it, comfortable with the spotlight, if you like, because she, because of her background as an actress uh, and as a star. Um, so I think unlike some past girlfriends that Prince Harry had, she can handle the pressure and the media spotlight. And, you know, when it comes to the British tabloids, it is a very bright, very hot media spotlight. Uh, but I think she has proven already that she can handle it. And, um, you know, I think that already, actually, I was reading something over the weekend that apparently her brand is even more valuable in some regards than Kate Middleton, the Duchess of Cambridge, of course, the wow. wife of Prince William. Yeah, so... in I mean, it depends how you measure these things, but those that do say, well, for example, if if uh, if if she walks out wearing a particular shirt, for example, that shirt is Googled more <laughs> often than the shirt that Kate Middleton wears. So there you go. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? And and the name, I've already been playing with the name, you know, Markle, Sparkle. I'm thinking of the ring. I'm thinking of, you know, all of the fun <laughs> that they're going to have with those headlines uh, over there as yeah. as they do. That's right. Yeah, we can already uh, you can already hear the so, drones right across the Commonwealth. Can't right, you? right. So we know that uh, already because uh, you know the official reaction, if you will, is is out. Uh, you know, the prince's grandmother and grandfather uh, have issued their congratulations. They're very happy. Of course, his his father and stepmother have as as well. Um, you know, one thing that uh, I guess maybe in past eras of the royal family that might have been something for the tabloid media uh, around the world to hook onto is the fact that uh, Meghan Markle's been married before. This is her second marriage. Oh, my. Um, you know, in the old days, that would have been a bit of a thing. But, uh, you know, we're in modern times and it doesn't seem to be affecting anything at this point, which I'm happy to say is a, a move forward, I think. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are remarking that. And I think, you know, that's the fact that not long ago, really, I mean, we talk about the olden days, we're really talking even just a few decades ago, this would have been potentially scandalous. The fact that Prince Harry is not only planning to marry someone who's divorced, but she's a foreigner, an American, of course, and she's also mixed race. And, you know, that's getting a lot of talk here in the sense, you know, in, in a positive way, the fact that this does represent a step forward for one of the oldest, most traditional institutions in the world, right? So she is, you know, in every way, very, a very modern figure and a very, in now joining a very traditional family. And I think a lot of people who, you know, do this for a living, who report and monitor the royal family, think that she will be a terrific influence in terms of, you know, growing the appeal of the royal family and broadening it, um, not least because in addition to her work as an actress, which she's expected to retire from now, she has also long worked on the, in the humanitarian front, very involved with World Vision as an ambassador, worked with the, with the UN. She's a vo been, always been a loud voice for women's rights around the world. So, you know, this is the type of work that she has already been doing and that she's expected to continue in earnest now as a member of the royal family. Yeah, and I, I, I wonder, uh, you know, again, uh, the the royal family must have, uh, and I think it started with William and Kate, and uh, must have learned uh, the Di the whole Diana thing, I think, taught the royals a, a, a significant lesson. And I think that um, when uh, William and Kate announced their engagement and became married, of course, and have children, 
they I think it was that was a real turning point for the royal family and I I, I also got the sense Jeff that that was a, a point at which um, the other older members of the royal family were really you know set to really step back and um, and allow the younger members to carry the torch so to speak and do it in their own style without much interference from uh, from Buckingham Palace. Yeah, and I think, you know, doing it in their own style is, is the key there because, you know, they are, I mean, Prince, Prince Harry is still going to, you know, ask the Queen's permission formally to marry, uh, to marry Meghan. And I think he's, he's, he has already asked the Archbishop of Canterbury for permission. The Archbishop of Canterbury is the head of the Church of England, and, uh, you know, you need the Church's permission to marry someone who is divorced. So Prince Harry is still going through the motions here, but, I, you know, there was no question that he would not be stopped from marrying the woman that he loved. In fact, they've just given an interview here, their first interview since becoming engaged this morning. It was a very brief interview, more, more of a photo shoot, really, but they were asked, you know, how did you know that she was the one? When did you know that she was the one? And he said he knew immediately that it was love at first sight. So there's no way that any of these old traditional institutions were going to stop him from marrying her, I think. But he is still going through the motions. And, you, you know, you're right about the fact that the younger royals are expected to step up now, and I think Meghan Markle is, you know, could it potentially really help with that. I mean, Prince William and the Duchess of Cambridge and Harry have still, over the past couple of years, the, you know, the stats are remarkable. The Queen and Prince Philip still put in more public appearances than the younger royals do. Um, and I think, you know, Prince William recently retired from his job as a health, air ambulance pilot. Now you've got Prince Harry engaged to marry Meghan Markle, a woman who's comfortable with the spotlight, who's already heavily involved in charitable work. So I think this is the changing of the guard. I think we're seeing it really this year. And I think, uh, you know, the Queen, 91, Prince Philip, 96, they deserve to put their feet up a little more often than they do, I think. And so I think we can expect to see a lot more of Prince Harry than we did before, perhaps, and now he'll have a partner there with him, Meghan Markle. Do we have a wedding date? We don't. All we've been told is spring 2018, so uh, the bets are now on. The bookies are, are taking bets if you've got some extra pocket change <laughs> to throw around. We know that uh, if you want to make an educated bet, perhaps, uh, the only factor to consider would be that uh, Kate the Duchess of Cambridge is expected to give birth to her third child. That's in April. So hmm. the bookies, I think, are probably betting that the wedding would happen maybe after that. So if it's the spring of 2018, maybe we're looking at a May wedding. I don't know. I mean, the bookies are, are already taking bets. They're on a number of uh, locations when the, where the venue might be. Uh, you know, Smart Money apparently is on St. Paul's Cathedral, not Westminster Abbey, which hmm. sort of speaks to the fact that Prince Harry might be looking for a relatively smaller scale wedding at least again by royal standards um canada by the way is in the running uh, 20 to 1 odds for a canadian wedding so a bit of a long shot there and uh, jamie they're also taking bets on whether um whether prince harry will shave for the wedding because <laughs> you've got some money <laughs> well if they if they have it in canada then i'm sure they'll have a poutine they'll have a poutine station set up at midnight right i mean you need that or <laughs> Some, something yeah. similar at the reception. The poutine truck. Yeah. <laughs> we'll take bets on that. There you go. Jeff Semple, uh, Europe Bureau Chief for Global News. Thanks so much for this. Uh, really appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your day. Pleasure. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Is it all talk? 
uh, and no action when it comes to helping paramedics and first responders that are battling mental illness and PTSD. We've heard a lot about this uh, over the last few years, and there's been some some political efforts to uh, you know bring forward legislation, uh, move bills through that would uh, that would help people who are uh, dealing. Uh, with the effects of uh, PTSD, it's it's very serious. But I, I have to wonder, uh, as somebody that worked very, very briefly uh, at one time in his life as a paramedic, I did it for about a year and a half right here in Hamilton, I have to wonder how seriously uh, people at the political level or at the legislative level uh, take this stuff. Be- and the reason I say that is because I wonder in general how serious people in general take things like mental illness, how seriously they take mental illness. I still think that a lot of people view mental illness as a weakness of character on the part of people. Despite all of the scientific evidence, all the medical evidence that's out there, I still think a lot of people think that you're just, you know, you just don't have a strong enough backbone that, you know, buck up and, you know, move on or, or even worse, you know, you chose that career, you chose to be a paramedic, you chose to be a police officer, firefighter, um, you know, a member of the military. So that's what you get. Tough luck. I think, unfortunately, that that's still, uh, that attitude still is somewhat prevailing. In any event, we're, uh, we're going to talk about it right now uh, with somebody that uh, I know from my past life, a good guy, a, a guy that you want to see. Uh, on the street if you're you're in in trouble when it comes to your health and that's Mario Pastorero he's the president of Opsu Local 256 he's a paramedic Mario nice to have you on the show thanks for having me on Jamie so um you heard my ramble there uh agree or disagree with my general you know overgeneralization well, I think you were right on point uh, and unfortunately uh, there's still a stigma of shame as it applies to mental illness illness within our profession and most uh first responder professions, and that forces our paramedics to suffer in silence. Um, The stigma of don't think about it, don't talk about it, don't do anything about it is the prevailing culture. I'd like to think we're making some inroads, but it still exists, and it's going to be a significant period of time before it's completely unveiled, Jamie. It's such an ironic thing when you consider uh, the fact that the people who need this help are the same people that are trying to help everybody else on the street to overcome um, traumas and, and terrible incidents and, and, and you know, accidents and fires and um, all these horrible things that can happen in life. And uh, yet you're the ones um, often who are suffering and don't have any steady kind of help to allow you to deal with that. Are there no... Is, is there no, nothing in place for, for you guys to help deal with your workplace stress? Well, it's referred to as helping the helpers. Right. So after a traumatic call, who takes care of those that have actually helped, those that are in need? Yes. Uh, presumptive legislation was passed in April of 2016. It also mandated that all EMS employers have a plan in place uh, to deal with uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. I can say in Hamilton we've been very active. We've been very collaborative with our employer. Uh, we essentially, in some ways, we've been at the forefront. We were one of the first services to deliver training to all our paramedics. It was through the Canadian Mental Health Association, a program that's called Road to Mental Readiness. We've also established 
a peer support team. Uh, we have now uh, providing uh, professional medical oversight, Dr. Paulette Laidlaw, who has experience in dealing with first responders. So we're at the very last stages of rolling out this peer support team and the program to all our staff. We've chosen the peer support uh, individuals, facilitators, they receive training. I myself as a union leader along with my union executive, Awas, will be receiving the training. So there are some steps, uh, progressive steps that our service has made. Um, I'd like to think things can always happen quicker um, because anecdotally I can tell you um, that it's a very real issue in health and paramedics. Many Hamilton paramedics have been diagnosed with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. So, so we need to we need to provide the resources and bridge the gap to get them help quickly, Jamie. Okay, and that's great. So let's assume that we you you get the resources. The but the other part of this thing is that often the very people, um, you know, members of your union, paramedics, police, firefighters, you name it, who are suffering from PTSD, do it in an undiagnosed way, often, you know, denying that it, that, that they have it. Uh, it takes a long time for it, the things to come to a head often, doesn't it? And that's, that, that's concerning. And I wonder how it, we get ahead of that. It's tough. I think there has to be um, a societal and cultural uh, change. It has to be transformational in that the mental illness is not a weakness. Right. It's, it's an illness. And, and that wall has to be taken down. And people have to be honest about what they're feeling. And the resources and the supports have to be in place at the front end, not, at the, not only at the back end. We have to find preventive measures to deal with some of the workplace stressors. I can tell you in Hamilton, and, I, and Bill's had me on on numerous occasions, given you know, the escalating call volume, our work is very demanding. And I know you know a fair amount about that, Jamie. We actually miss you on the road. <laughs> I think I'd tell you that. But. Thank, thanks for saying that. But and, uh, and if you're still interested, we'll, we'll take an application. Yeah, but. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I can honestly say that I, I actually think that I might be the one of the ones with PTSD. I have a great deal of I have a great deal of empathy and a great deal of sympathy uh, for first responders, obviously, because I've had a little taste of it. Sure. Uh, but but um, yeah, you're right about the the shift. There has to be a there has to be a shift. I wonder, is there anything at this point, uh, Mario? Uh, that's, um, you know, legislated or is policy um, among the services that um, responders have to attend uh, some sort of um, mental, emotional evaluation uh, thing every so often. You know how we take our cars in every 10,000 kilometers for an oil change. Should we not be doing that in a sense with our mental health when it comes to people that are in, in the position of being first responders? Sure. So you're referring to a mental health tune-up. Yeah, on basis. exactly. Tra- training and recognition is key. I mean, one-off uh, training programs aren't effective. This is part of our workplace culture. Yeah. Uh, our work is, is very demanding. It's unpredictable. It requires physical and emotional stability. And we, as you know, we, have, we have, to have to have the ability to react quickly under very stressful human conditions. What happens after that and the cumulative effect of being exposed to those stressors is significant. So there has to be education, there has to be support, and we have to bring down that wall of shame where you don't feel embarrassed to say, you know, I need help, I need to speak to somebody. Uh, and, and, and sometimes that somebody just might be your peer, thus the peer support team. But, you know, your peers are not psychological 
um, healthcare professionals. You know, we do the work. We've been there. We've seen that. We got to have the resources and provide the bridge to get that professional help. And there's other workplace stressors, stressors, call volumes, missing missed meal breaks. Those are real yeah. factors that contribute to some of the stressors that paramedics experience. So it's not just one thing. It's a number of things that we have to do collaboratively and recognize that our work is unique, it's stressful, and we have to find ways to, to help the helpers. And that's our paramedics. I've only got 30 seconds, Mario, but I, but I have to say this. Uh, you know, it frightens me, literally frightens me, to think that there would be first responders out there that I'm depending on uh, in my emergency situation who are suffering from PTSD undiagnosed or just general anxiety and, and stress. I don't want that as a, as a, 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 a taxpayer, as somebody that would, that would consume your service. I don't want that. I want you guys to be fit. I want you to be healthy um, so that you can help me. I mean, it just makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does, Jimmy. And you're not asking for too much. I mean, we want our paramedics to be psychologically fit. There's a societal impact in the costs associated with not dealing with these issues on the front end. There's an economic impact and additional costs to the city, the taxpayer. It's incumbent upon all of us to have all of the supports in place to help our first responders and paramedics, Jamie. All right. Mario Pastorero, president of OPSU Local 256. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Say hi to everybody and uh, have a great day. Will do. Pleasure. Take care. Bye for now. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, We're talking about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and uh, we heard from uh, Mario Pastorero. He's a paramedic, a veteran paramedic here in our city, uh, president of OPSU Local 256, about, um, you know, moves are afoot to address it, uh, but not enough is being done fast enough, and I think... I think we're a little bit behind the eight ball, to uh, put it mildly. You know, Bill C-211 was put forward. It was by, uh, it's a private member's bill uh, put forward by conservative MP uh, Todd Doherty. And that aims to uh, form a national strategy around PTSD. Now that passed, that bill passed with uh, all party support, but is languishing uh, in the Senate. Senate. 160 days later, uh, Doherty says he's frustrated that the Senate hasn't addressed it, and uh, each day that it sits unhandled, uh, more lives are at risk, and and that's and that's very true. But again, I think um, you know what? How in the world could we have possibly? It's taken us so long just to get around to the idea of having open discussions about mental health issues in general, let alone drill down to specific diagnoses like. PTSD or GAD, which is generalized anxiety disorder or clinical depression. My goodness, you know, it's it's been decades it, it, before we were able to even have a simple discussion about whether you have it or not, because society has viewed mental health or mental illness rather as something that you don't talk about, that it's, um, you know, a sign of weak character, buck up. You know, I don't know where, maybe that goes back to that old uh, colonial thing, you know, the, the Brits had, you know, stiff upper lip and, you know, keep calm and carry on and all of that stuff. Well, times are changed. Uh, times have changed significantly, um, although not enough. Vince Savoya is the founder and executive director of the Tima Contour Memorial Trust. He's a former paramedic and emergency medical dispatcher, and he's on the line with me now. Vince, thanks for being on the show this morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, so, 
am I correct in your opinion in saying that um, it, it has been so it has taken us so long to be able to even remotely openly discuss mental illness that it shouldn't be a surprise that we're really delayed in getting specific things like PTSD dealt with? It, it's a good question, Jay. And, and um, we've, we've been at this now for 17 years. Uh, wow. Trying, trying to raise awareness around mental health injuries within the first responder community. And as much as the conversation has has actually been elevated over the years, and we do have more and more people talking about mental health and um, you know, there are national programs about uh, mental health awareness. The reality is that we as a society in Canada still stigmatize mental health and mental illness. And um, for all the talk that we're doing around, you know, coming forward and asking for help, the reality is there are still a number of organizations and employers out there that are unwilling to accommodate those individuals with mental illness. Well, and that is oh, and it always comes down, uh, Vince, to the bottom line. It comes down to money. It comes down to any anything that involves a resource involves a cost, and unfortunately, um, you know, accountants look at costs as something that they don't want to bear, and they don't consider the long term costs, of course, because people are just people. Right. And so we'll just hire more people. If that guy burns out, well, too bad for him. We'll just get we'll just get somebody else in. You're like you're laughing at me incredulously, I gather. Well, it's funny you say that because we do know uh, the Great Westlife uh, insurance company came out with a stat back in I think it was 2011, 2012. The cost to the Canadian economy when it comes to mental illness is massive. One billion dollars with a B. Yeah. Per year. Massive. And uh, we also know through, through research that for every $1 an employer invests in mental health services, the rate of return on that is close to 7 or $8. So there is ample evidence for employers to engage in um, assisting their employees with mental health illness or with mental illness. But again, it's, it's that societal stigma that we have, uh, that, that suck it up, buttercup attitude that still is very prevalent uh, right across the country and across all organizations, unfortunately. And, and is it that that attitude, that, that stigma that you uh, discuss, the reason that the Senate is is uh, so slow in, in, you know, giving royal assent to a, to a bill that passed all parties that would at least get the framework in place under which we could uh, deal specifically with PTSD? Yeah, your guess is as good as mine, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that we really should be talking about um, as, as, as a society is how we as citizens are treated under uh, the provincial health care plans. Um, you know, you or I can walk into an emergency department with a broken leg and we'll be seen right away and we'll get the care and support that we need. But if we have a mental illness and walk into the local emergency department, uh, we'll be lucky if we're diagnosed properly. Um, if we do need to see a psychiatrist, uh, we only have 4,700 psychiatrists in the country of 35 million people. Yeah, there's a major shortage. Major shortage. But the unfortunate reality is that, you know, if you or I want to be proactive and we want to go out and see a psychologist or Cut. even a social worker. We're into our own pocket. We're into our own pockets, you know. And so. And they're so backed great. up, too. And they're backed oh, and up, they too. You know. Um, you know, I've got a client now who needs to see a psychiatrist, and he's on a waiting list one year. Yeah, exactly. And and so, 
It's it's absolutely the problem is absolutely overwhelming. It is. It's all absolutely overwhelming. So how do we deal with this, Vince? I mean, where where does it does it begin with each individual? You know, raising their voice um, and and talking to each other at the dinner table and at gatherings, or do we really we need to beat down the doors of you know our our government and say, hey, come on, this is a serious problem that's a, a national problem. Let's put some time, attention, and money behind this and get it fixed, yeah. and we'll all win. And, and and the problem is, my illusion is that at the federal level, they're saying it's a provincial problem. Oh, it's always the pass the buck thing. <laughs> yeah. And at the, at the provincial level, yeah. it's, it's, we don't have enough funding from the federal government. Yeah, so it's, it's a hot potato that nobody wants to deal with. It, it is. I, I wonder and, and what it'll take, though. What will it take? <laughs> I, I honestly don't know, because you know what? We're up to 43 suicides a year to date in the first responder community. And, um, my primary concern is within the paramedic community, Jay. Yeah. Um, we know that the rate of suicide in Canada is roughly 10 people per 100,000. That's the average rate of suicide within the first responder community, within the paramedic community especially, right now that rate is at 46 per 100,000. So we're ringing wow. the alarm bells, but nobody's home. It's uh, frightening. Vince Savoia, yeah. uh, we just got to keep talking, founder and executive director of uh, the team of Contour Memorial Trust. Thanks uh, for joining us today and uh, talking some more about it. Let's hope that the future is a little bit brighter and that at least this bill gets passed and we can keep on uh keep on the good fight because you are fighting the good fight and we appreciate it no thank you very much have a good day thanks vince take care okay, bye-bye 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 905-645-3221 star 9900 and yeah i did you know work briefly as a paramedic and one of the reasons i got out of it this is when i was about 20 years old um is i literally couldn't stand seeing how people lived and i couldn't that was the depressing part. It wasn't going out to traumas. It wasn't going out on the street and dealing with car accidents and the mayhem around car accidents. It was actually the day-to-day uh, stuff about the way people lived that became the depressing factor for me. And I said, go back into something fun like the media. So I did. There you go. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. There's been a um, a lot of talk about sexual uh, harassment, uh, a lot of talk about sexual assault um, uh, all over the place. Hollywood, um, in, in various workplaces, political environs. And uh, this has a lot of people thinking, my word, uh, tis the season. Uh, but are employers becoming more sensitive to impro- inappropriate behavior at the office and at office uh, parties? I didn't even. I thought office parties were pretty much kaput. You know, I thought that employers had pretty much said, ah, you know what, forget about that. The days of going to the office Christmas party and dipping into the spiced eggnog and getting a little crazy and maybe uh, photocopying your backside, uh, you know, is are, are gone. And and maybe for good reason too. Uh, you know, I I don't know. Times have changed. Uh, I don't know a lot of people that want to party with the people they work with. <laughs> That's the truth. I don't know a lot of people, A, that want to go to any party where their boss is in attendance, number one, and B, the guy that sits in the cubicle next to them, who they can't, who they have to l- listen to every single day for eight hours a day and smell the guy's egg salad sandwich every day and all of <laughs> kind of stuff get out of here i don't i'm not spending four hours with you having a christmas cocktail and pretending everything's great i don't know 
Um, what do you think? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Uh, do you have, do you go to an office Christmas party? Do you still have those in your company? Uh, or do you get invitations and ignore them? Or are you all with that? You know, yeah, let's have the office Christmas party. You expect it. You want it. Give me a call, 905-645-3221-STAR-9900. And maybe you've got a story about inappropriate behavior at an office Christmas party you've attended. Bring that too, 905-645-3221-STAR-9900. Leo Samfiru is uh, an employment lawyer in Toronto. Uh, Leo, great to have you on the show today. Thanks for being here. Great to be with you. Uh, as I said, it uh, is the season. Our employers becoming more sensitive to to inappropriate behavior at the office and office parties we know that they a they don't employers don't like to spend money number one number two they don't like to uh have liability when it comes to employee safety vis-a-vis the consumption of alcohol etc and, and see uh this whole sexual harassment uh sexual assault uh, stuff is probably uh the final nail in the office christmas party coffin isn't it well, uh, Jamie, I, I still think that employers, many of them, are still holding Christmas parties. But I think that uh, with the, the latest uh, developments that we've seen in the law and the climate out there in terms of sexual harassment, the awareness of those issues, more employers are going to be deciding that it's not worth the trouble. Now, back when I started practicing law, there were still a lot of employers that had the, the view of, oh, you know, boys will be boys, and uh, gosh darn those kids, they'll, they'll figure it out themselves. Well, those attitudes are long gone, and they have to be long gone. Employers have to understand that they have responsibility for behavior, for the behavior of their employees. They're liable for it. And if something goes wrong, someone is mistreated, God forbid, assaulted, but doesn't even have to be that extreme, where an employee is, uh, is harassed somehow, that then becomes an issue for the employer. And the employer may find itself with a human rights matter on its hands, uh, so the, the holiday party is an extension of the workforce, it really, or, or the workplace. So what happens there may as well have happened in the office between 9 and 5, and employers have to set rules, have to monitor what happens. It's not a good idea for the HR manager or the boss to, to drink too much because they have to maintain control of the event and, and deal with issues as they arise and as they happen. And they may mean uh, letting some, someone leave early or you know, getting them out of there, uh, separating issues that, that arise. You can't ignore it, and if you do, uh, you, you could potentially have significant liability. Right. Lior, uh, help me out with my history here, okay? Because uh, I can remember, and it seems to me it was, oh my goodness, I'm thinking here the late 80s when there was a lot of discussion about sexual harassment in the workplace. And I and I don't recall at the time, I imagine it was a groundswell of people coming forward, making it an issue, that resulted in things like seeing sexual harassment policies actually posted in in workplace environs. I remember in the you know working in the media, and I can remember sexual harassment uh, uh, policies being posted at radio stations and in in the television station that I that I worked at as a as a matter of HR best practices that were no doubt based on you know lawyers saying, hey, you got to do this. Well, Jamie, sexual harassment, sexual harassment, it's certainly not a new concept, and it's right. not a new feature of, of the modern workplace. But what has changed 
is, first of all, our interpretation of what constitutes sexual harassment. What is acceptable and unacceptable behavior? Our, our definition of sexual harassment has cer- certainly broadened as, uh, as we've become uh, more educated and we've come to appreciate what impact our behavior and others may have. But beyond that, uh, you mentioned the 80s. Back then, the only way you could hear about uh, a sexual harassment incident in someone's workplace is if there was a media story about it. Right now, uh, you know, with the, in the age of the Internet and, and, and Twitter uh, and Facebook, I mean, these issues are prominent. Anyone that may have had an issue in the workplace is able to talk about it, is able to, to send a message across and warn others. So employees and employers have become more aware of these issues and have understood that this is not just something that we need to do to post a policy and forget about it. It's easy to post a policy and say, hey, we've done our job. We told you what's acceptable. It goes beyond that now. You have to actively take a role in monitoring behavior. You have to actively take a role in protecting employees that need protecting. And you can't say, I didn't know. You can't say, no one told me. Uh, unless you're, you're active, you have to make sure that uh, you, you as the employer perform your role. And some employers are, are, have not yet gone to that point, but mo- many employers, in my experience, are becoming aware that this is a real issue and posting a policy is just not going to be good enough. Are, are employers uh, liable if their employees, for example, uh, uh, a bunch of them say, okay, we're, we're going to go out after work. We're gonna, they've agreed to get together after work outside of the workplace uh, at a bar or a p- private residence or what have you. And, uh, you know, uh, something happens in that type of environment is the employer uh, liable for what happens there. The employer is not directly liable if something happened in in uh, an offsite meeting that the employer did not organize. But to the extent that what happened in an event like that may then spill over into the workplace, so someone was harassed, and then that person has to continue working the next day with the person that harassed them, then the employer at that point has a responsibility. They can't say, well, this happened uh, you know, at a bar on Saturday at midnight, so it's not my problem. No, because it may have spillage effect. It may translate into the workplace. And at that point, the employer does have to appreciate that uh, there's an obligation to do something about it. Now, obviously, the employer may not become aware of what happened at the bar on a Saturday, but if and when the employer does become aware, rather it's, whether it's through observing or being told, then it does have to make sure that in the workplace, at least, things are fine, that no one's being harassed or mistreated, that there's no poison work environment that's been created. So by, by in saying that, Jamie, yes, what happens off work, even when the employer is not involved, can become the responsibility of the employer. All right. And, and uh, are you, as a lawyer, hearing more and more from uh, people about uh, office Christmas parties, or they don't have to be Christmas parties, uh, office gatherings, social gatherings, that kind of thing? Are you getting more calls along these lines, or, or, or what are you dealing with uh, most of the time, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the layoffs or the firings or this kind of thing? Well, this time of year, Jamie, uh, without uh, without exception, I get a lot of calls from employers asking me, so we're having a party, what should we do, what should we say, should we uh, serve alcohol, should we not, you know, what happens if uh, an employee drinks too much, how do we prevent them from driving, should we have uh, taxi uh, taxis available? 
So those issues do come up very, very often in these situations. Employers are understanding of their liability and their exposure and trying to cap it off and, and, and deal with it properly, and that's a good thing. You can't turn a blind eye. Uh, but, of course, uh, I've also been involved in many situations where people get fired because of something that happened in the office party, and, and then we have to assess whether that's cause, whether that was a, a firing offense. Mm. So a lot of issues come up uh, in this time of year as a result of, of these scenarios. All right. Leo, Leo Samfiro, uh, employment lawyer, uh, who you hear on the radio uh, quite frequently, too. Uh, always a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for this today. My pleasure. Thank you. Have a good day. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.